0: My name is Gil McVein. I'm a statistical geneticist from Oxford. About 20 years ago, I had the privilege of spending three years here in Edinburgh working with Brian and Deborah Charlesworth. What attracted me to their research was the way in which they combined a deep understanding of evolutionary thought, uh, a very mathematical and theoretical approach to making sense of evolution, but also a very data-driven way of using evidence to try and unpick some of the thorny evolutionary problems. Today I'm back in Edinburgh talking to them about their work and what inspired them. So Brian and Deborah, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Maybe we could start by you telling me a little bit about the current problems that you're working on.
1: Uh, Yes, well I'm working on relations between recombination rate and Uh, patterns of evolution and variation, which of course have been a preoccupation of mine for many years, but I think we've got some new takes on it, particularly uh, we've been recently looking at the uh, pattern of allele frequencies in relation to recombination rate and coming up with uh, something which at first sight doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, so we're trying to figure that out. (laughs) Deborah?
2: Well, I'm still working on sex chromosome evolution. Now I'm working on sex chromosome evolution in the guppy, a fish, uh, which is a new departure for me, but I have good collaborators who know about fish, and this is a long, long long-standing problem. The species, the guppy, has been thought to be particularly interesting for sex chromosome evolution because it fulfills the conditions where suppressed recombination is supposed to evolve because males carry um, mutations that are good for males and bad for females, and it would be better if they stuck with the Y chromosome. And uh, we're trying to apply molecular genetic approaches to test whether this has in in fact occurred. And uh, it seems as if uh, it might not have, but we're testing that long-standing theory based on genetics that goes back to the 1920s, but with no molecular markers until very recently.
0: Maybe we could start by going back to the early days of your work in evolutionary biology. Brian, tell me about what it was that first interested you in evolution as a topic within biology
1: um that's a long time ago so it's a little (laughs) difficult to remember the details um i guess i mean i've always interested from a child in natural history and animals and uh, then uh, uh, later on of course you learn about genetics and then theory of natural selection uh, and so i got mainly by reading uh, interested in in connecting genetics with, with evolution, and, and uh, um, that's the way it's been ever since, I guess.
0: <laughs> what was your first exposure to genetics?
1: Ah, uh, now that's that's hard. To, I think reading about it in a textbook, there was that old textbook of zoology, Grove and Newell, uh, which was mostly rather boring, you know. <laughs> Trot through the different phyla of animals, but at the end it actually had quite a d- decent chapters on evolution and, and genetics and that sort of. It seems so much more interesting than just uh, labelling things with long Greek and Latin names. <laughs> Deborah, what about
2: you? Yeah, well, Grosvenor, that was the high school textbook. That's right. right That's yeah. what I remember too. But we didn't get that far. My biology teacher said, oh, you know, we're going to run out of time. We can't deal with that. It was at the end of the book, like genetics and evolution often are. And I remember her saying to me, but you can read it if you like. And I did, and I was thrilled with it, the genetics. And she lent me a couple of other things, including... um, The um, Julian Huxley's book, Evolution and the Modern Synthesis, which was deeply mystifying to me. I ploughed through it, but I I loved it. I could see it was fascinating, but I don't think I really felt I understood it. But I was interested in the genetics and the the dovetailing of genetics and evolution from that moment. And
0: Brian, you've used um, mathematics very heavily within your research to try and understand the processes by which evolution can actually act. Where does that interest in mathematics in the combination of genetics come from?
1: I cannot claim to be uh, anything but a truly lousy mathematician. Um, But I was kind of intrigued by the fact that genetics does have a sort of uh, inherently mathematical structure. I mean, probability is at the core of genetics and then uh, reading, I think it was a book by a man called Carter. Um, who's a lecturer at Cambridge, uh, he wrote a book on evolution, of just not a particularly inspiring book, I don't think it was not in any way original, but he described some of the results of uh, classical population genetics and distributions of allele frequencies and so on. And that sort of sparked my interest, I think. Yeah. So. Um, difficult to remember the details. And I I think I came across Haldane's book, The Causes of Evolution, quite early on, which is actually a very nice description and has somewhat, uh, to me, uh, in those days at least, impenetrable mathematical appendix. but...
2: (laughs) But did you read the Haldane article in the Penguin New Biology? Yes. I think because both of us had those books, little thin books, I'm not sure before, before university, yeah. no, no, High yeah. school.
1: They're there on the shelf, actually. Yeah, they're on actually. the
2: shelf. <laughs> we slimmed them down to one copy of each because we had overlap, and we both had that one. Um, and it had an essay by Haldane,
1: yeah, and that, that was
2: interesting.
1: The 1955 one on population genetics, yeah. where he formulated Hamilton's rule, leading to the bitter dispute about uh, whether he had or had not anticipated Hamilton. But he had. He had. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it was in print.
0: And Deborah, your your introduction into biology, what or your your path into evolutionary biology. How did that come about? Well, that
2: came about much later because I never dreamt of working in evolution. I I read this evolution, the modern synthesis. I said uh, it was quite puzzling and difficult for me. I could see it was fascinating stuff, but not for me. I I was just going to be a a biochemist or maybe if I was lucky, a geneticist, because I always loved genetics. But I never thought of working in evolution until Brian got his first job in Liverpool and I was unemployed. And I got drawn into being his assistant and then um, working on evolutionary problems with Brian that he was already working on. I, I wrote some computer programs for ideas of his. And then the professor, Philip Shepherd, professor of genetics, had this suggestion that I should work on the evolution of butterfly mimicry, which was a problem in um, why recombination might become suppressed between different genes. And I didn't want to work on mimicry. I I was a biochemist. I was just not interested in butterflies. I thought it was ridiculous. Um, But I went and read some of the things he said, and um, I thought, well, I could do something.
0: Brian, what were the currents in evolutionary biology at the time? What were the big problems that people were working on?
1: Well I think the, the most sort of uh, and this is the sort of late 60s and early 70s we're talking about uh, the, the sort of big excitement uh, was was the discovery of variation in protein sequences in populations and also the biolect- general electrophoresis Burton and hubby and Harry Harris uh, and also people were starting to generate protein sequences and comparing species so me- molecular evolution at the level of st- protein sequence evolution had just started mm. and in parallel uh, the theoretical work mainly by Kimura and Ota and crow uh, on uh, models of molecular variation and evolution was trying to and people were trying to put that together with the the, the data it wasn't actually as terribly successful um, because in retrospect the data really wasn't good enough to, to, to understand fully what was going what, on
0: what was your point of view going into that sort of controversy? were you skeptical of the neutralist ideas initially, or
1: as you know, there was a sort of fairly sort of vigorous controversy, especially in this country. The sort of older school yeah. people like Brian Clark um, wanted to believe strongly that everything was under selection, um, whereas I think uh, I was did my postdoc with Richard Lewontin, um in Chicago. Uh, we were much more open to the neutralist idea, although I th- think a lot of us felt p- that probably allozyme polymorphisms are under some form of selection, uh, which actually turns out to be correct, but the evidence wasn't really tremendously strong at that point um, but, um so I, I was I think I could claim to be somewhat open minded on the issue oh, <laughs> that 's
2: my recollection too I think even Philip Shepherd as one of the old time um mm ecological, evolutionary ecology genetics, he was open to some neutrality, I think. My recollection is he was not uh, fighting it, whereas probably Arthur Cain, (laughs) the professor of zoology there, (laughs) was fighting hard against neutrality as as an important contribution to thinking about evolution. Yes,
1: I think if you mentioned the word neutrality to Arthur Cain, he sort of turned purple in the face. Yeah,
2: but Philip, I think, was, was... He was a very interesting person, and and I think he he was open to the idea. He understood, obviously, that there was selection on um, the mimicry and the things he worked on, but he was open to the suggestion that that not everything was under selection.
0: Deborah, you've worked a lot on plant genomics and plant evolution. Why, Why did you start working on plants?
2: Well, that was a consequence of working on the mimicry. So the problem in mimicry had to do with the evolution of suppressed recombination between genes, the idea that you have a mimicry gene and then another mutation that might improve the mimicry, which would be good if you were a mimic, but if you were an individual that didn't have the mimicry gene, um, then it might make you more conspicuous, it would be a bad thing, and that's a situation that can select for reduced recombination. And once we'd done and published that work on mimicry, we were just looking for other situations that might also be illuminated by the theory we'd come up with and that we could model because the idea wasn't new that interactions would lead to suppressed recombination and sex chromosomes I think was suggested by Brian. I wouldn't have known that it was another case where the same thinking could be applied but um, Brian suggested it and I got to work on it Um, and it was immediately obvious that it did have this sort of similarity.
0: And what was what was the first data set you ever collected? The first experiment you ever.
2: Did? Oh Lord! Horrible in my PhD, um, I um, I was left at the end of the first year of my PhD. I was left uh, with my supervisor having died, having been too ill ever to come to work in his in that first year. So I had two years of PhD funding and had to think of an experiment, and so I. Um, studied whether blood glucose levels were showed any signs of genetic variation in mice. I, was, I had to work on mice, that was what I was working on. Um, and uh, I uh, proposed this experiment to my replacement supervisor. And he said, yeah, go for it, you can do that in two years. And I did. Less than two years, I was keen to get out.
0: And you've enjoyed experiments ever since?
2: I used to, yes, but I haven't done any experiments. I haven't been, haven't done anything in the lab, done a bit in the greenhouse, but nothing in the lab since moving to Edinburgh more than 20 years ago. I've had people work in the lab, and I help analyse data, but I haven't been in the lab myself.
0: You mentioned writing computer programmes mm. uh, with Brian a long time ago. Tell us a bit about what it meant to write a computer programme at that point.
2: Oh, that was fun in those days. Um, by the time I was doing it for Brian in Liverpool, it was a bit more civilized. But still, you wrote your code, a van took it to the computer centre in Manchester three days a week, and you got your um, program punch cards, you, punch cards. Punch cards, yes. You got and you got a printout there you could look at and see if you could find your bugs. And if you thought it was okay, you could get um, your results. But earlier than that, when I was a PhD student, I did this experiment on mice, and it involved a very complicated analysis of variants that needed to be programmed. And I wrote a computer program for their computer, Titan. It was called probably slower than your wristwatch. Um, and it had its own language, Titan Auto Code, and that was punch tape. Mm-hmm. And it was, again, you cycled in, with your punch tape with a rubber band around it, took it to the reception and next day you could get the print out of your programme. How we ever got any programme to work, I don't know, we were young.
0: How do you debug a programme like that? Uh,
2: you, you thought about it much more than you do now. Now I, I, I bung stuff in and run it and it finds errors and I thought them out. I don't know how we did it then.
0: When I think about that time, and I have read a lot of the, the work that was relevant uh, and coming out, then it seems an incredibly exciting time, and many of the really important figures in the field. Who was particularly important to you uh, as a mentor, or someone, or someone you got ideas from, or s- someone who challenged your thinking? Well, it
1: was really not until I did my postdoc that uh, this this I had this uh, good experience. My PhD advisor was pretty much useless. Um, uh, it was Richard Danton, uh who at the time was kind of the sort of name in, in sort of more experimental side of population genetics I did, did two years with him and he was he was a guy who, who did not uh, in any way uh, tell you what to do. I mean he expected you to come up with your ideas and do your work and he would chat to you from time to time. He had a huge number of postdocs he had a big grant from the Ford Foundation uh, and uh, but you know, he, the atmosphere was great because he had, you know, very bright postdocs. John Gillespie was there, mm-hmm. Monty Slackin. They were my contemporaries, uh, and various other people. Um, uh, so, uh, and we'd have a weekly sort of lab group meeting where people would present things and learn from us. He was, you know, one of these people that never hesitated to criticise, mm-hmm. uh, and so he had a, you know, you you realised that. If you're doing science, you have to be critical. You have to say, "Does do we really know this? Or is this just you know, somebody bullshitting? Uh, uh, and so I think I learned a lot from him.
2: Yeah, that phrase, I don't understand what you're saying.
1: Yeah, well, we, we thought somebody was really he really disagreed with what we were saying. He sort of leaned back and said, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> this would cause a lot of people just to kind of collapse. Yeah, <laughs> so he was know. widely hated actually. Right. But, I, I, but he, was, he was a guy you could argue with. You see. He wasn't you, the sort of big yeah. professor who would say, you've got to believe what I'm saying. Yeah, if you'd said, no, Dick, wait a minute, I think you've got it wrong there, he would actually, you know, listen to you. Uh, he, I mean, he was kind of aggressive in his style, but it was a sort of
2: It was a good aggression to to get to the bottom of things. I really think there is a sort of good, aggressive discussion in science that he's not the only one we've experienced that with. And it can be taken wrongly. People can find it too aggressive. But I think it's intended for a good purpose, and it works. It was also,
1: again, as a sort of lab head, he would not ever sign his name on a paper which he didn't think he'd actually done something. So... um, uh, you know, the work I did in, in Chicago, uh, I mean, he would never put his name on it.
2: But it never. wasn't in fact originally his idea, because it was the project of Ted Giesel, right?
1: Not really. Uh, it, it was Ted Giesel sort of messing around basically. Okay. <laughs> I don't think it was much to do with Dick. it I was really. It was, uh, it was actually more uh, yeah. Tim Prout, who's also uh, yep. a wonderful character. Have you ever met Tim? have once. Yeah, know. well, Modis Lacken described him as looking like a train conductor, and mm-hmm. um, he had his very down-to-earth manner, yes. and uh, so we were discussing something, uh, uh, he was visiting Lewontin for a few weeks, and he said, oh, I don't believe in Fisher's Malthusian parameters, and uh, okay. so that, uh, so I thought, okay, why not? He said. So he explained why not, so that was my first piece of theoretical work, actually, mm-hmm. uh, okay. was showing that, yeah, if there's a problem with Fisher's parameters and you can solve it by looking at the, the real equations for an age-structure population. Um, okay. uh, so he was, again, a, a similarly, um, you know, very thoughtful and uh, very nice um, person to, uh, to interact with. Tim was a really Tom, nice person, know. yeah. And Deborah, for you, were
0: there particular role models you had?
2: I don't, not in evolution, because I never dreamt of working in evolution. I never thought I, I, I would work in this field. But obviously I saw Brian in the interaction with Dick Lewontin's lab. I was a postdoc in Chicago at the same time in a dead-end lab that was doing human genetics, but not doing anything, actually. I was the only person there doing anything. Um, and uh, the um, so, you know, I, I, I didn't have a, a good... Uh, interaction either in my PhD because my supervisor was too ill and he died, and then I had odd supervisors on and off, but I was on my own. Um, Then I had a postdoc, which was also a disaster because of this, um, you know, I won't go into detail, but I saw what was happening with Brian and I went to some of the seminars and some meetings in the evolution group, which was not what I was working in, uh, but I could see it was interesting and then um, going to Liverpool when Brian had his first job there was Philip Shepherd, and he was great to talk to. In fact we were doing this theory and poor Philip went down with leukaemia and we were allowed to visit him in the hospital and tell him the results as we were getting them and it was wonderful. It was obviously good for him Mm -hmm. and um, it was his comments were always really helpful and insightful and it helped the project along even though he wasn't there in, in his office. And then we moved to Sussex, and John Maynard Smith was another person you you could discuss ideas with and was wonderful. And he was also interested in the evolution of separate sexes just at the time. In fact, we had quite a ding-dong argument about that because I had made a model with avoidance of inbreeding being one reason why females would spread in a population that was initially hermaphrodite. John was absolutely adamant that uh, evolution of separate sexes required no inbreeding and no, no effect of avoiding inbreeding. So we had quite a lot of arguments about it, but on a, a friendly right. way. We, well, we were both right. It's not essential to have inbreeding, but it probably is a factor, and there are various pieces of evidence that suggest that it's usually or commonly a factor. So he, uh, John was working with Rick Charnoff, who was, I think, visiting Sussex at the time, or
1: I can't remember the details,
2: a long time ago. But they had a model where you could get the evolution of separate sexes just by selection on how you allocate resources to male or female or both. Um, And you could, but it's a bit difficult without avoidance of inbreeding.
0: Do you, Deborah, have a favourite paper that you've written?
2: Well, that one one has, I suppose, come to be a favourite paper because... Um, you know, I have to keep coming back to it because it's been attacked a lot of times and, and I have to keep thinking more about it. Um, so I suppose, in a sense that is, but uh, it, it, it's, it's difficult to say. I have plenty of unfavorite papers and, and especially when you look back even at that one, which I might say is a favourite, you think, oh my goodness, I could do it so much better now. But that's how it was then.
0: Brian
1: what about you do you have a favorite well i suppose you'd have to uh, trot out the old 1993 background selection paper yes. which is i think our most cited research paper so it's most
0: cited but for you is it the most important <sighs> That's awesome. is it the one you're proudest of
1: I don't, actually, in, in some sense, uh, as a piece of theory, it's fairly trivial. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the one I'm proudest of is the one we published a couple of years ago on associative Over Dominance because, uh, uh, admittedly, I was greatly helped by this amazingly smart Chinese PhD student, Lei Zhao, who's now working with Chris Illingworth in Cambridge. But uh, here, here was this thing which has been sitting there for 40 years, and I and everybody else thought Ota and Kimura had solved this problem of... The effect of selection at one locus on variability at another. And it turned out they were completely wrong in their interpretation. Uh, And um, the interesting thing about it is that then we had a model of selection against uh, deleterious recessive, partially recessive alleles at one locus and a neutral locus. And when you go through all the rather horrible matrix algebra, which basically it required a lay to get it right. I, I in, introduced the idea but I got the algebra hopelessly wrong at some point. Um, you find that the whether or not the selection of the locus which is experiencing deleterious alleles uh, uh, promotes increased variability or reduces it depends on the product of effective size and selection coefficient. So there's a sort of turnover point where one regime when it's NES is less than one, you get promotion of uh, increased variability if the dominance coefficient is low enough. On the other side, you get background selection. So actually, background selection merges into associative over dominance. People have noticed this in computer simulations, but not sort of mm. interpreted it. So we have a simple, you know, formula which which interprets it. Yeah. Um, so th- uh, th- I think that's the most sophisticated piece of theory that I've done. So, um, it may not be the f- terribly important, but I think it, it actually we've got some science with the Drosophila data uh, that, that, that this may be going, a sort of may be going on in lower recombination regions, even in large populations, but I'm not sure about that at the moment. You mentioned Drosophila,
0: and I think one of the hallmarks of your work is how you've linked the modelling to the collection and analysis of empirical data. How do you think about experiments? What, what's a good way of designing an experiment? Um, when you, or I'll ask that question in a different way. When you're working on a problem, are you always thinking about is there an experiment I can do to answer this, or is there data I could collect to address this?
1: Well, I think one should, uh, shouldn't do theory in a vacuum. And I think it's a problem with a lot of people come in from applied maths is, is that they're more interested in the nice mathematics than they are in actually applying it to a real situation. Since I'm not very really good at mathematics. I, and it's the other way round. Obviously, you don't necessarily always know what kind of experiment would actually is feasible at the time. I mean, I think, you know, one of the problems that we've had in population genetics is that until the rise of we know whole genome sequencing a lot of the questions that we were interested in there just wasn't enough power in the data mm-hmm. to actually answer them i'm not saying we can, can even answer them now but yeah. if we can't answer them with the data that we've got now that's the end of the, yeah. the, the, the field yeah. <laughs> um, don't say that <laughs> there
2: are things that have been answered i mean we you know there's lots and lots of evidence now that selection of various kinds is going on and and we we you know we knew it but we we now we nobody can wriggle out of it.
0: I'm interested to know, Deborah, as the rise of genome sequencing and collection of variability at a population scale has become feasible, have there been things arising from this that you've been very surprised about, or has this all been more or less as you expected?
2: Oh, I think there have been plenty of surprises, yeah. I mean, you know, I I, I think uh, the pervasive nature of purifying selection. I mean, it shouldn't have been surprising, but to see it, don't you think?
1: I think, well, yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's actually surprising to to biochemists. I remember giving a seminar at the University of Southern California, uh, (laughs) and um, I I just happened to mention some data we'd collected on Drosophila, and the estimates of, you know, Ka over Ks for a bunch of genes, and they say it was about, you know, 10%. Uh, so this shows that you know, about ninety percent of mutations in protein sequence are deleterious and mm. you never get anywhere in evolution. So some lady at the back said, "Oh, but I'm a biochemist. We know that very few um, changes in in uh, structure of proteins affects the function of the protein." Mm. So much as was that. Says that you know, protein chemists don't really know much about proteins. <laughs> yes, that was a good. That one. got a laugh from the audience. She wasn't exactly no. pleased. It's a by ter- terrible,
2: rude thing to say to a person, <laughs> but it's. No, I think that that's uh, to be able to be quantitative too, um, as you just said. Really, I, I, I think, you know, we knew that there must be purifying selection. We didn't know if it was often. We didn't know if it was strong. We know much, much more about that now. Than we did, and it's really illuminating because then you have to take that into account when you're thinking about other kinds of selection, like possibility of balancing selection. So I think we, we have a much more refined understanding of what's going on in terms of selection in genomes and different genome regions. It looks terribly naive when you read something that you, you, you wrote or other people wrote um, a good few years ago
0: and are you were you surprised by how much of a genome turned out to be at least not very functional from a from a biochemical point of view?
2: Well, I mean, obviously we didn't know when we were younger that um, organisms had so few genes. So we thought of the genome being stuffed full of genes, right? Uh, we didn't know about introns at all. When they were first discovered, we were very skeptical. Um, but we didn't know about large intergenic regions either. Um, so, you know, I don't know that our thoughts about any of those sort of things would have been worth anything really um, at the time. Um, um, well, yeah, uh, not much. You
1: know. entirely true, I mean, Dobzhansky uh, yeah. actually, 1959 pointed out what later became this known as the C-value paradox that, uh, yeah. that there's no particular relationship between the amount of DNA in the nucleus and organism complexity. So if you take salamanders, mm-hmm. they have enormous amounts yeah, of DNA, and I mean maybe sort of human egotism, but one doesn't really feel that a salamander is quite as complicated as a human being, which has a much smaller amount of no, DNA.
2: But we still could have had a hundred thousand genes, or whatever people thought in those days. There was still plenty of DNA for that. We didn't know about. Drosophila or humans, um, the number of genes at all. We all thought much bigger numbers.
1: Yeah, I mean than,
2: than we now think.
1: People working on Drosophila th- thought that if you looked at the salivary chromosome, there was one gene, one per band. Um, it was based on some study of the tip of the X chromosome by Gaskell, um, and Chuck Langley was extremely vehement. This mm-hmm. was you yeah. know, sort of the truth. Um, Mm. Uh, oddly enough, it turns out it doesn't give you a terribly bad estimate <laughs> yeah, of the total yeah. number of genes, but, it was is just... is <laughs> but it's not actually correct, yeah. <laughs> and Burke Judd is quite
2: yeah. uh, o-
1: open about that yeah. these days, um, not at least last time I talked to him, which was about 15 years ago. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, the level of sophistication that's been introduced by genomes, so you can see in you know, our knowledge of the structure of the genome, of course, is just, you know, I mean, it, still there are a lot of issues with whole genome sequences with the, because we know that there's large areas of the genome which consist of highly repetitive mm. DNA and people basically don't mm. go into that <laughs> when they sequence a genome yeah. very wisely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, it, it has, I think, uh, wouldn't, without genome sequencing, we really wouldn't know much about.
0: So I'm gonna change that slightly and um you've worked in lots of different places and many different countries and uh you've seen a lot of different ways in which science has been done. What did you learn, Deborah, about the differences between how science happens in America, for example, versus Mm-hmm. Britain.
2: Well, it did seem a breath of fresh air going to Chicago, even though I wasn't in a good lab. I saw what happened in Dick Lewontin's lab with Brian there and the people there. And from Cambridge, in our day, Cambridge was, as research students, were a fairly lowly form of life. And there was this sort of formality that was still going on in those days where you were addressed as um, Miss So-and-so if you were a woman. And if you were a man, you were addressed as your surname, Charlesworth. But they didn't know how to say good morning to a, a, a female person at all. Um, they could say good morning, Charlesworth, but they couldn't bring themselves to say good morning, Miss Maltby. To me, I think it didn't seem right, so they would just sort of say and run past. Um, and, and, and you were told or you were made, it was made very clear that you should not, um, you know, express your views at coffee time, that kind of thing. Whereas in Dick Lewontin's lab there was coffee and people were exchanging views like crazy and maybe not agreeing and uh, it was all done in a lively and friendly manner. I mean, you might have got quite heated over disagreements, but I mean, students and postdocs, if somebody had something to say, they got their chance to say it. It was also, I mean, so much better, The in those days, rather too long, probably, PhD period in, in, in... Um, American universities. The three years you got in in our time in Cambridge was too short, even though we had quite an intensive part two. Three years was ridiculous. Uh, So I think the American PhD training system is still much, much better. Um, They have time to grow up. They have time to help one another. The older established students help the younger ones. You get a very good atmosphere when you go and visit those places very often. Um, we didn't have any of that.
1: Oh, it's changed we, quite a bit here, though. changed yeah, I think changed in a bit some here. ways, the genetics department at Cambridge Yeah, um, we can't was, generalize. was perhaps not totally representative of what happened in, mm. in Britain. Even at that time, it was quite different at Sussex, for yes. example, when we moved there. That was,
2: well, John was always open to young people and ideas John always liked to hear young people's ideas, even if he would explain why he didn't agree with them, but he he always took them seriously enough to listen first, don't you think? Yeah. yeah. And that was, but he was unusual and admirable in that way.
1: I mean, I think it's more a matter, almost really more a matter of those individual people rather than the the, the culture or the
2: country. I think so, but I think generally, research students were not um, given, it wasn't, a feeling that you had in Chicago that they were potential scientists in the making and, and that they could be supported and they were young and we have that now here much more that you don't expect the same from them as you expect from a postdoc but you you look out for signs that they could develop and you you make allowances for the fact that they're still very young much more than they did then I think and it was not just at Cambridge, one did occasionally meet students, but we were not encouraged to go to meetings or even just to listen. Um, We were very isolated, but we did occasionally meet other students.
0: So clearly genome sequencing is enabling all sorts of deep evolutionary questions to be addressed with data uh, in humans and software and other species. Do you think in 10, 20 years' time, we'll have answered all the questions that you've ever
1: hoped to address? Uh, Well, you know, that's the sort of question which you make yourself look like an idiot if you answer it, but (laughs) I'll have a go. Uh, What I suspect uh, usually happens in science is you answer some of the questions, uh, but the answers to the questions raise other ones. Yeah, that's just what I was going to say. Uh, I think probably um, we will get a much better picture of uh, questions like what's the distribution of selective effects on new mutations for different types of uh, Mm. sequence, coding sequence versus intergenic regulatory sequence and so on. Um, I think uh, obviously the methods we've got at the moment are are quite imperfect, I think, and I suspect that it won't be so much the data as, as people coming up with better ways of... Modeling the data and using bigger and more expensive computers to to, to make sense of it. Um, I, mean, uh, I mean, I'm not sure myself that the sort of rush to collect enormous numbers of sequences from large numbers of different individuals, which you're somewhat engaged in yourself, is, is going to help much with population genetics. I can see yeah. it for the sort of applied aspects of interpreting human disease. I think uh, that that's clearly important, but um, I think for the more um, sort of evolutionary question, we don't actually probably need such enormous data sets. Um, do we need? Them? I think we need better, model, better methods of analysing the data.
2: Because um, there are so many different factors. affecting things that you have to be able to try and... I mean,
1: for example, it's becoming quite clear, at least Mm. for an organism like Drosophila, that people have interpreted distortions of the illiterating Mm. spectrum as as evidence for population expansion. But it's also clear that a a, a contributory factor is actually just the effects of selection at linked sites, and I think we're just still struggling how how to disentangle those. We need need better models. Do you think we
0: can disentangle them, ultimately, or are these
1: models... Going to be too complex for any data. Well, that's hard to say. I think we've got to have a go and see what happens. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: The other thing I think, though, from genome sequencing is a completely different um, set of questions that were stuck because we we didn't have the data um, and and couldn't answer them. But we can revisit them now. These ones, for example, like um, supergene in mimicry. Uh, is an example, we can actually try and find out, have hope of really finding out whether several different genes are indeed linked, closely linked in a genome region and contribute to the different trait differences that are involved, or whether it's something else. Um, and there are several different situations with so called supergenes where, you know, it's been believed, and there's theoretical modelling, some of which we've contributed to, that there are several distinct genes with different biological developmental functions closely linked that have been brought together um, and become closely linked and presumably other genes with other functions are stuck in between them and also in this closely linked block of genome. That sort of thing is now testable for the first time and people are working on it, but we don't have the answers yet. It's turned out also not to be quite as easy as you might have thought
0: one of the big topics in evolution, which, unless I'm mistaken, so apologies if I am, you haven't really worked on so much, is speciation. And is there a reason why you haven't worked in that area so much?
1: Well, you can't work on everything. <laughs> fine, you know, Life is short and art is long, as the poet said. <laughs> I've never mm-hmm. been convinced myself that something special about speciation as an evolutionary process. I mean, I've sort of had arguments with Jerry Coyne uh, when he was our colleague at Chicago about this. Um, I mean, I think it's good to do the genetics of speciation and to find out, you know, what are what's going on. But I mean, ultimately, it's just a divergence of populations and the accumulation of incompatibilities between them, which stop interbreeding. Uh, And there's nothing really very mysterious about this. I've never quite understood why people make out there's some sort of deep problem there, which...
2: Well, they're just intrigued by speciation, like other people are intrigued by developmental things. I think people have just, for no good reason, a special interest in one thing or another. I think what I'm saying is
1: that there aren't special evolutionary processes which lead to speciation. It's just the accumulation of the stuff that we know is going Mm. on in populations.
2: Yeah, but I can see being interested in it, but how how much... um, Time does it take? What is making these incompatibilities? Um, you know, if you have a computer and you upgrade its system, you, you you're not surprised that species don't work well together after a bit of time separation. Um, incompatibilities do evolve, but uh, to understand them, I can see why people are intrigued. No,
1: I, I mean, I think the, the experimental work which people mm, like Eleanor yeah. and David have done, have actually taken apart the, the, part, the yeah. genes a which bit. are actually involved in causing hybrid inviability or fertility infertility and, and showing in, in the cases which have been analyzed that these genes appear to be evolving quite rapidly under natural selection. That's, that's mm-hmm. excellent yeah. work. I think it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, but it's not telling s- something fundamentally new about the evolutionary process yeah. as such. It's mm-hmm. just showing that the evolutionary process we all believe in, natural selection, is actually doing the job
2: here. Yeah, I think beautiful work.
1: And for those Myself are engaged
0: in the program of generating a, a lot of genome data linked to phenotype in, in many places. From the your sort of your perspective, what are the things that we're not thinking about that we should be?
1: <laughs> well, um, I guess one of the <laughs> big unsolved questions that um, maybe these large data sets should help is, is what, what is maintaining the variation in quantitative traits like mm-hmm. variation in human height and so on and the evidence seems to be pretty convincing now that there's a very large number of independent bits mm-hmm. of the genome which are influencing this as Fisher modeled in 1918 <laughs> um, uh, so that the so-called infinitesimal model i mean it's not a perfect representation but it seems to have a good deal to it, but then where, what, where is this variation coming from, and why is it maintained in the, in the population? Um, we don't really know the answer to that. There are models mutation, uh, mutation and stabilizing mm-hmm. selection. They don't actually seem to fit terribly well. Um, maybe there's also selection for maintaining alleles of intermediate frequencies that are involved. Different kinds of traits will probably have different processes. I, I think there's a lot of questions there, which these data sets will help to, to answer those questions. Mm-hmm. And but de- I'm not sure how many people doing this work are actually interested in that question. Uh, that's another Some s- are. Some are.
0: I, I think a lot are interested but don't have the time to ask these questions. Well, that's right. Mm. Yeah.
1: Mm. The somehow. pressure to use it for
0: applied purposes yeah. is pretty, pretty mm. intense. Right? Yeah. And Deborah, from your point of view, what, what should we be thinking about? Or are there, are there problems that we should be using some of these new technologies to address that we're, we're not...
2: Well, I, I just said my pet one, you know, is to revisit these these um, models that have been made and the predictions, and, and I, I think that can be interesting. I mean, it's clear that people are already finding cases of linked genome regions um, by chance because they, they, they're doing genome sequencing and they're looking at phenotypes and they're finding associations between regions, sometimes large chunks of a chromosome that are not recombining for example, so understanding whether those are cases where this same kind of evolutionary phenomenon has happened and selection has promoted the lack of recombination um, versus not, um, mm. that's uh, another related area to what I already mentioned. Um, but uh, you know, I, I don't know what the outcome will be of that, but I think there's a good deal of work there to try and understand such things.
1: Of course, recombination rate itself, as you you yeah. have worked on this, I believe, um, something called PRMD9 and mm-hmm. stuff, uh, uh, you know, it's a very interesting question. Uh, why
2: recombination happens?
1: Well, why it happens at the rate it does. The is, it, is, it, is, it, is there selection for increasing re- and de- recombination or is there not? I mm. mean, what do you think? I think there is, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. the, the evidence is sort of
2: indirect, indirect and
1: yeah. perhaps somewhat weak.
2: Yeah, plenty of uh, evidence that you can have situations to reduce recombination and plenty of models, but we're still not so sure about what's maintaining it at levels that are surprisingly high in some organisms. Yeah.
1: Um, so I think, there's, Lots, I think yeah. there's a lot of interesting stuff will probably emerge in that direction. Now we're actually getting to grips with some of the genetic factors and molecular factors which are involved in modulating recombination rates. At, uh,
2: yeah, I mean, even just providing the genetic markers to ask whether variants in which part of the genome are associated with genetic differences in recombination, mm-hmm. that's something which people have done in the past, but it probably can be done a great deal better now. Um, the, just the, the provision of genetic markers from genome sequencing is you know, can be applied to many problems. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: Um, If if you can only only get people to do it, that's the trouble. Yes,
2: it's surprising how often people don't want to do the genetics. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you can sequence a genome because you send it to somewhere and they do it and you get stuff back. But combining that with doing the genetics, I'm kind of proud that with the guppy we're doing that. And it is helping. It, it, without doing the genetics. Just explain
0: that a, a little
2: yeah bit. Well, so for the Y chromosome, for example, we knew that the guppy had these male coloration traits which show Y-linked inheritance. The sons look just like the father, yeah. but the fathers have various different kinds of patterns, but their sons resemble them. And um, we knew that this was um, surprising because there are 23 chromosomes, and why should the Y chromosome have all of these? This theory that I've mentioned suggests that that's what you might expect, but all the same, um, we know that's one chromosome. We didn't know whether it, it behaves like a Y chromosome. We call it a Y chromosome, but it's you have to remember that that meant, you know, it, it's behaving this way according to those coloration factors. We didn't know whether the whole chromosome is not recombining by doing neutral or ordinary molecular markers which don't have any reason. Um, to be um, anything special, uh, we're finding out that this whole chromosome doesn't recombine in males. In fact, it turns out that this particular fish, and it turns out probably many fish, mostly don't have recombination in males. It's not quite like Drosophila, where males don't have recombination and females do. The males do have recombination, but they seem just to do it at the tips of chromosomes. Without genetic mapping, we, we we couldn't have known that. And having the markers from genome sequencing let us do the genetic mapping, and then that's leading to other things that we can do with those, um, with that understanding.
1: But that's quite, I mean, surprising in Drosophila, the only species which really has a good dense SNP map is Drosophila melanogaster. Mm-hmm. We've been working on Simulans for the last couple of years, and mm-hmm. people have promised us high-density SNP maps, but they're sort of never got around to actually completing their uh, analysis. Organisms
2: (laughs) are so uncooperative, you know, they they either they won't produce large families or they go and die and and the guppy is very inconvenient that way. Large families are difficult to get, Um, but uh, our collaborators in Cornwall are doing it for us. Not not what you'd call large, but larger than humans anyway. Um, And we, you know, we're accumulating data, we've got enough now. We're certain that this pattern is real, and it's as I said, turns out not to be particularly confined to the guppy, but it's a rare thing—very, maybe two, three other fish. uh, People have got that kind of data, and it's now it's much easier to get it.
1: Still a lot of work. Still a
2: lot of work. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So just a couple of broader questions to finish with. One is about how you communicate about your science, and you've both put quite a lot of effort into writing books, which is unusual these days, I think, in, in, in science. Why, why have you written books?
1: Uh, well, the first book I wrote, Evolution and Age Structure Populations, I was invited to by Chris Cannings and yeah. Elizabeth Thompson, who were editing a series, Cambridge, on Mathematical <laughs> Biology. So that's an easy question to We were on sabbatical at the time, for a year so that gave me some time off to, to do it
2: yeah i um, wish i had the photos of you um yeah. with all the pages right. b- yeah. spread around we were also invited by OUP to do the very small introduction to evolution that happened because of an invitation uh,
0: that's had a lot of impact that that book i've come across a lot of people who've read that yeah. do you do you are you aware of that well we yeah, know it's yeah. sold quite a lot of
1: copies yeah it yeah, um, pays for our cottage
2: uh, in Yorkshire year.
1: And we don't. We haven't haven't been able to buy, you know, a, yes. a BMW or no. But it pays <laughs> the rent of a
2: week's holiday yeah. in, in in Yorkshire. Yeah. It, um, well, not quite these days. The cottages have gone up.
1: Yeah. So I think that was quite a. That was quite fun doing. It that. was
2: fun. Yes. To be told to write something very short, then you really have to focus on what you think is important. So it was very interesting. And I've begged them to get someone to do a genetics one, mm. and they haven't yet. Not really. And I still think. If I ever get to the end and still alive at the end of this guppy project, I'd like to try something like that. I think for, I think genetics could be a, a really nice one, very short, sticking to the yeah. crucial things.
1: Yeah, well, the other book that <laughs> turned out to be yeah a, not sure. an elephant. Yes. Uh, again, we were sort of invited to write nagged it, even by Ben Roberts, mm. um, and uh, we hadn't really intended it to be such a monster. We kept asking him to you know, is it too long? And he never sort of
2: did not He wouldn't tell us. We kept saying, how many pages are we up to? Because we need to cut stuff. And it was already clear. I did tell you to cut out a whole lot of things from time to time. I
1: made you cut stuff out. Yes, we
2: both told. But I was, I think you wrote most of the text. And so it was me saying, got to cut this. And you were very good. You'd say, yeah, I suppose so.
1: Yeah, at one point included a rather elaborate account of your work on Mm -hmm. the the relationship between the coalescence process Mm -hmm. and the, uh, Linkage to secret. I know agreement.
2: beautiful stuff had to be thrown out. It was sad.
1: It's not easy to explain. I mean, it took me hours to understand what the hell you'd done in the, in the first place.
2: <laughs> it was good to understand it. But that
1: probably one of your best pieces of work, I would say. Yeah, if I, I, I can turn it, the tables yeah, on yeah, you. That, yes, great. It's
2: yeah. it was. But uh, no, that book blew up. Also, he printed it with wide margins, yeah. which we begged him not to. We said no more than three hundred pages, and it ended up double that.
0: And so. d- just a final one, uh, slightly flippant question, but if you've got any, do you have any, if you were to look back on your younger self, would you have any advice? What What advice would you give your younger self?
2: Be careful who you go to work with. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I mean, I was, you know, Brian and I were a couple already and I went and worked at places because Brian was going to work in those places and it was a bad mistake. We should have done what, you know, brave young people do today, had a relationship at a distance and both developed our careers and tried to get together when we could, but we didn't.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I would. I regret doing my PhD in Cambridge rather mm. than going to Edinburgh to work with people like Alan Robertson. Yeah. I think that was another mistake. No, no. Um, uh, it, it don't think that because you know you you go do your undergraduate degree at one place and you think it's you know the best place in the world or whatever, you go and try somewhere else, and similarly. Yeah, moving,
2: is, uh, moving is good. Good, Yeah, intellectually stimulating to move even after those early years, well, yeah. you know, when we came here, it, it, it opens new windows in your mind, it's, it's been good.
1: And Deborah, thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time and trouble. Yes. <laughs>